In Revelation chapter 17, following the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath, one of the seven angels who holds the seven bowls says to the apostle John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When Luther, Calvin, Knox, and the other reformers read these verses in Revelation 17 during the days of the Protestant Reformation, they saw in this passage the papacy, that is, the popes and the Roman Catholic Church. Luther's 1522 German translation of the Bible famously had on the page opposite this description in Revelation 17, a picture wherein the whore of Babylon, the Babylonian harlot, is even wearing the papal crown. Why did the reformers make this identification of the Roman church of their day with the Babylonian harlot of Revelation 17? Well, in the 16th century, the church at Rome wielded tremendous political and military power. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. The Roman Catholic Church spanned the civilized world. The dwellers on earth have become drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. The church awarded to its popes and referred to him by blasphemous titles full of blasphemous names. Titles like Holy Father and Supreme Pontiff, which means Supreme High Priest or Vicar of Christ. Those are titles which properly belong only to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not to mention the title that is still used today, His Holiness. The church possessed tremendous wealth and adorned its ministers and ceremonies with great pomp and circumstance. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Its worship was and remains a ceaseless fountain of idolatry. She holds in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The church with its incense and images and its doctrine of transubstantiation and the adoration of the host, its system of penance and merit, its veneration of Mary, the intercession of the saints, reminded the reformers of all of the idolatries of the Babylonian harlot. 
And finally, it's historic and horrific persecution of the true saints and of the true church reminded them of when John said, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So the question is, were the reformers right in identifying the Roman Catholic Church of their day with the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 17? I would say it's hard to argue against the evidence. However, I would alter just one element of their interpretation. I would not say that the Roman Catholic Church is the harlot of Babylon. I would say that the Roman Catholic Church is one of the many manifestations throughout history of the Babylonian harlot. In the overarching scheme of Revelation, the harlot of Babylon stands as the unholy counterfeit to the pure and spotless bride of Christ. Just as the dragon is the counterfeit of God the Father, the beast is the counterfeit of the lamb who is God the Son, and the false prophet is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Just as the followers of the lamb comprise a pure and holy bride in the book of Revelation, so the followers of the beast comprise an impure and unholy prostitute. Thus the harlot of Babylon stands in the book of Revelation for the false church, for a false religion located in Babylon, which stands for the worldly city. But the Roman church wasn't always corrupt, decadent, idolatrous, Before there were popes and palaces and cardinals and cathedrals, before there were miters and tiaras and purple robes, before transubstantiation, before the treasury of merit, before there was purgatory and papal infallibility, indulgences and the intercession of the saints, before the seven sacraments and this elaborate system of penance, before Constantine, there was a church at Rome, a true one. And it bears little resemblance to the grotesque monstrosity that exists today. We find a glimpse of this church in Romans chapter 16. And we find in this chapter that the church at Rome is not constructed of gold and silver. It's not made of stone or stained glass. It's a people. Mostly poor. Persecuted. Gathered together to worship Christ and to receive the strength that they need to persevere to the end. This final chapter of Romans is more than just a list of greetings and a record of names. It's the record of a church that once existed in Rome, a church comprised of real saints, not dead ones declared so by popes on the basis of their Miraculous and meritorious works. It was a church comprised of saints redeemed by the blood of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A church that was actively engaged in the ministry of the gospel. If the Roman Catholic Church is the harlot of Babylon, the Roman Church of Romans 16 is the chaste and holy bride of Christ. 
Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the first 16 verses of Romans 16, and we're going to find seven characteristics. I know your bulletin says nine, but I changed my mind after it went to press. Seven characteristics of the true church at Rome. Seven characteristics that ought to mark every true church, including First Baptist Nixa. We're going to look at the first two today, and we'll save the last five for next week. The first characteristic that I want to point out is the true church's simple structure. And I begin here because of the vast difference that exists between what we find in the Roman church of Romans 16 and the extensive hierarchy of popes and cardinals and archbishops and bishops and priests and deacons of archdiocese and diocese and parish that exists in the Roman Catholic church. There is simply no way to justify the enormously complex Episcopal structure of the Roman Catholic Church from what we find in Romans 16 or anywhere else in the New Testament. It cannot be done. That is the invention of men, not the dictate of the Spirit of God. Rather, throughout the New Testament, what we find are autonomous local churches led by elders and served by deacons. They gathered regularly, at least weekly, for worship, for the reading of scripture, for teaching, for prayer, for baptism, for the Lord's Supper, for mutual exhortation, for fellowship and encouragement, and the exercise of the spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. They sought to fulfill the great commission by making disciples of their own nation and by sending out missionaries to those nations where there was no church and there was no gospel. And they lived out their faith in their everyday lives as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and farmers and craftsmen and merchants and public servants The true, original, apostolic church at Rome was not complex. It was not hierarchical. It was simple. It was straightforward. It was effective. And it was beautiful. Now, even though we don't have in Romans 16 the kind of blueprint for the church that we find in other places in the New Testament, like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, there is sufficient evidence to give us a pretty good idea of this church's structure around 57 AD. In this passage, Paul identifies at least three and maybe as many as five house churches. I'm going to show them to you here in a moment. In other words, if you were to go to Rome in the late 50s AD and you wanted to worship with the Roman church, there was no cathedral to which you could go. There was no basilica to visit, no sanctuary. There was no church building of any kind. You would have had to have known someone in Rome who was a Christian and that person would have let you in on the location where the church met. He would have taken you likely to a house, the home of a wealthy church member, where there would have been a large upper room, probably overlooking a courtyard. And this room would have been able to accommodate no more than 70 or 80 people. Which means that when one house church grew beyond the capacity of that house, it would have had to have split and to begin to meet in two houses and so on and so forth. 
Now, as I mentioned, this passage alone indicates that there were at least three and perhaps five house churches meeting in Rome. Let me show them to you. The first one appears in verse 5, where Paul says, Greet also the church in their house. There, that is Prisca and Aquila's house. Greet the church that meets in their house. There's one. So there was a church that met in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla or Prisca is the same name uh, or the different name in English of the same Greek name. And from what we know elsewhere in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Timothy 4, Priscilla and Aquila were wealthy merchants originally from Rome. They were Jews and they were tent makers by trade who traveled extensively and worked alongside Paul in the cause of the gospel, both in Corinth and in Ephesus at various times. So there's the first church. Look down in verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. That phrase, the brothers who are with them, probably refers to those who met with them regularly in the same house church. The next verse, verse 15. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, most New Testament scholars think that Philologus and Julia were probably husband and wife. It's the way that they're grouped together in that particular sentence. That would probably make Nereus and his sister their children. But in addition to this family, husband, wife, son, daughter, there was also a group of saints who gathered with them of whom Olympus was probably the only one that Paul knew by name. In addition to those three house churches, it could be that the reference to the family or the household of Aristobulus in verse 10 and the family or the household of Narcissus in verse 11 may refer to house churches as well because we know from extra-biblical sources that both Aristobulus and Narcissus were Wealthy and influential men in Rome, and they would have possessed large households with many servants and large homes that could have accommodated large churches. And these five may not even represent every house church in Rome because Paul had never been there, and he may have only mentioned those that he knew. Now, if we add in the evidence from other large Roman cities that we know about, cities like Ephesus and Philippi, for instance, it would seem on the basis of the evidence that the Roman church was comprised of closely connected networks of house churches, a closely connected network of house churches under the shared leadership of a body of elders and the shared service of a body of deacons. It was simple. No bishops, no archbishops, no diocese, no parishes, no elaborately complex hierarchical structure, just a network, closely connected network of house churches that shared a group of elders and a group of deacons. And even though it's not found in Romans 16, church history has blessed us with a glimpse into the worship of this early church at Rome. In the second century, a man named Justin Martyr. Now, Martyr wasn't his last name. It was a name that he earned by dying for his faith in the year 165. 
He was a Greek from Samaria who lived for a time in Rome, and he wrote a work called his first apology in the year 155. And in this, he describes a typical worship service on a Lord's Day in a house church in Rome. It's one of the earliest and most complete descriptions of the early church worship that is extant today. Justin wrote this, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. That's the New Testament and the Old Testament. These were read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president or the pastor, it's the word for leader, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things, right? So the word is read and then the word is taught and then the people are exhorted on the basis of the word. Then we all rise together and we pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president or pastor in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent by saying amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president who secures the orphans and the widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us. And in a word, he takes care of all who are in need. On that day called Sunday, according to Justin, the Christians in various locations would gather together in a house And they would read scripture and they would hear the president or the pastor preach on that text. And then they would stand together and he would pray for them. Then they would take the Lord's Supper that was distributed by the deacons of the church. And then they would receive an offering for the poor and the strangers and the prisoners among them. What is lacking from Justin's description of the worship of the early Roman church was any of the additions and the accoutrements that would later creep into the to corrupt Catholic worship and sadly much Protestant worship as well. There were no laser lights. There was no incense burning. No robes, no crowns. The true Roman church was a simple church with a simple structure and simple worship, but it was powerful and it was effective and it was beautiful and it prepared a people to live and to die for Christ. And they did scores of them for the first 300 years, at least for instance, The worship of the Roman church prepared Justin Martyr to die for his faith in the year 165 when he was hauled in before a Roman prefect by the name of Rusticus and he was asked to describe his doctrine. And it's recorded that Justin responded by confessing his faith in one God, the creator of all things, and in his son, Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord predicted by the prophets. The prefect then asked him outright, are you a Christian? And Justin answered boldly, yes, I am a Christian. 
The prefect then mockingly asked Justin if he supposed that he would gain some eternal reward by dying for his faith. And Justin responded, I do not suppose it. I know it. And I am fully persuaded of it. And at that point, he was condemned along with seven other men to die for their refusal to offer sacrifices to a pagan god. How were these men prepared to die in the faith, to persevere through sufferings and death for the sake of Christ? A simple church with a simple structure and a simple worship prepared them for that. What does this have to teach First Baptist Nixa? I think it's a reminder that the power and the beauty of the church is in its simplicity, not in its complexity. The power is in the spirit, not in the sanctuary. It's in the preaching, not in the programs. When the fires of temptation and tribulation rage, when life and faith are on the line, you need pastors you can touch and reach on the telephone, not bishops that you can't. You need brothers and sisters who know you and love you and see you on a weekly basis, not lapsed members who you don't know by name and who don't know you. You need weekly worship that saturates your heart with the word and the spirit. You don't need candles and incense and idolatrous mass. If we want to be prepared to live and to die for Christ, and sometimes, often, it's harder to live for Christ than to die for him, then we must embrace the simple structure and the simple worship of the true and simple church. That's lesson number one from the church at Rome in Romans 16. Second characteristic of note is the true church's elevated role for the worthy women in its midst. Ever since the rise of feminism in the 1960s and, and even before that, the church has frequently been labeled oppressive and patriarchal in its posture toward women. But what we find in Romans 16 paints a different picture and tells a different story. What we find in the true church at Rome is a role for women that strikes a biblical balance between a feminism on the one hand that tries to obliterate every God-ordained distinction between the roles of men and women in the church and in the home and a patriarchalism on the other hand that seeks to deny any role for women in the church at all. Both of those extremes are erroneous and unbiblical as evidenced by the Roman church. In Romans 16, Paul mentions nine women, five of whom are specifically commended for their ministry in and to the church. Let's look at a few this morning. We'll look at three in particular. First is Phoebe, verses 1 to 3. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Let me point out three notes about Phoebe. First, it appears that Phoebe had been entrusted by Paul with carrying his letter from Corinth to Rome. Who brought Romans to the Roman church? More than likely, it was Phoebe. We know Paul was in Corinth 
when he wrote Romans. We know that Centrea is only eight miles from Corinth on the Saronic coast. And we know that it was customary for the author of the letter to send a word of commendation about the carrier of the letter so that that person, he or she, would be taken care of when they arrive at the letter's recipient. So it would seem that Paul entrusted a woman to carry the most important letter ever written. A letter which, so far as Paul knew, the entire Spanish mission depended upon. I think that speaks volumes for the way that Paul valued women. Second, Paul refers to Phoebe as a servant, literally as a deacon of the church at Centrea. Now, I'm going to bypass this morning the thorny issue of whether or not Phoebe was a deacon in an official ordained sense. That's a difficult question, or whether she was an unofficial servant of the church at Centrea. How is Paul using that word? Is he using it officially as an ordained deacon, or is he using it unofficially as a recognized servant of the church? Either way, it's clear that Phoebe held a position of prominence and performed a ministry of importance in the early church. Third, Paul calls Phoebe a patron, both of himself and of many others, meaning that she was a benefactor of Christian ministers like Paul. Patrons in the early church provided housing and financial aid, and they represented the interests of ministers before local authorities with whom they probably, because of their wealth and prominence, held some sway. If you put everything together from verses 1 to 3 of Romans 16, you arrive at a picture of a woman, according to Douglas Moo, of high social standing and some wealth, who put her status, her resources, and her time at the service of traveling Christians like Paul, and who, who, I'm sorry, who put their status, resources, and time at the service of traveling Christians like Paul who needed help and support, end quote. Furthermore, Phoebe was a woman who was vitally involved in the ministry of her local church as well as in Paul's own ministry. Second, I want us to look at Prisca or Priscilla, as Luke calls her in the book of Acts, verses 3 to 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. It's interesting that in four of the six New Testament occurrences in which these two names are mentioned, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is mentioned first. Does that mean anything? Maybe, maybe not. It's definitely odd, though. Scholars have proposed that this could be because she was the more dominant of the two or the more gifted of the two or because she was the more socially prominent of the two because she was the wealthier of the two. Who knows? But what is clear, both here and in Acts 18, is that Priscilla and Aquila were in ministry together. They were both Paul's fellow workers, they had both risked their necks for his life, and they were both held in great esteem by Paul and all the Gentile churches, and they both hosted a church in their home, just like they had both worked with Paul as tent makers in Corinth, and had both taken Apollos aside at Ephesus and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
At the very least, Priscilla and Aquila were a ministry team, intimately involved in ministry together alongside Paul and hosting a house church in Rome. Then thirdly, you have Junia in verse 7, which if our Greek text and our English standard version translations and King James version are accurate, is a woman's name, a feminine name, not Junius, which is a masculine name. Now the argument for why it should be Junia, a woman's name, and not Junius, a man's name, is is technical, but just suffice it to say that the evidence is strongly in favor of the feminine form, Junia, which would probably indicate that Andronicus and Junia, being grouped together in verse 7, were husband and wife. And Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Let me point out four things about Junia. First, Paul refers to both Andronicus and Junia as his kinsmen, that is his fellow Jews. He recognizes them both as Israelites. And I want you to think about that just for a second. If Paul had simply thought of Junia as Andronicus's little wife, if she had no identity apart from her husband, then there would have been no need for Paul to name her. But he does. She is his kinsman just as much as her husband. Second, both Andronicus and Junia were Paul's fellow prisoners, which doesn't necessarily mean that the three of them had shared a prison cell together. In fact, they probably hadn't. But it does mean that both Andronicus and Junia had been in prison for the gospel, just like Paul had. And in my reading of church history, that's not normally the case where both husband and wife are in prison together, unless the wife is also involved in the ministry of the gospel alongside her husband, and both are perceived as a threat to the established order. Third, both Andronicus and Junia, Paul says, are well known to the Gospels, which I don't think is a very good translation of the Greek. I think it would be better translated who are outstanding or prominent among the apostles, which doesn't mean that they were apostles with a capital A in the sense that Paul and Peter and James and John were apostles. The office of apostle in in that formal sense was given only to those who had personally seen the risen Lord Jesus and had been personally commissioned by Christ to the apostolic office and gifted with the apostolic gifts. Therefore, there were only 12 apostles plus a few others like James and Paul. That's not the way Paul's using the word apostle here. There are times in the New Testament, and this is one of those times, when the word apostle is used in a lowercase a sense of one who is sent with a message. That's what it means. One sent out with a message and sent out with the authority to bear that message. In other words, in its more generic sense, apostle with a lowercase a means something akin to the modern day word missionary. I think Andronicus and Junia were a missionary couple who had been sent with the message of the gospel to the church at Rome. 
Andronicus and Junia were to the Roman church what Mike and Casey Sadich are to the Indonesian church. When we talk about them, when we pray for them, we don't talk about Mike only as if Mike were the only one doing ministry in Indonesia. We talk about, we pray for Mike and Casey. They're a ministry team. They're a missionary couple. They're both performing ministry there amongst the churches of Indonesia, both ministering in unique ways in their own respective roles. Finally, both Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before Paul, meaning that they were Christians before Paul was. And that's an important clue because we know about what time Paul was converted. It was a year or two after Christ's resurrection and ascension. So if Andronicus were in Junia before Paul was in Christ, they must have been among the earliest Christians. They must have originated from Palestine, maybe even Jerusalem. They may have even known the Lord in the days of his flesh. This places them in a position of high honor in the early church. And it's an honor that Paul affords to both Andronicus and Junia. In addition to these three prominent women, Phoebe, Priscilla, and Junia, Paul also mentions Mary in verse 6 who worked hard for you, worked hard for the Roman church. He mentions in verse 12, Trephena and Trephosa, probably sisters who he calls workers in the Lord. He mentions Persis in verse 12, who worked hard in the Lord. And in verse 15, he mentions Julia, probably the wife of Philologus and the mother of Nereus and his sister. And he mentions Olympus, two members of the church that met in that home. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I think three truths need to be stated. Number one, it's clear that women performed vital ministries in the true church at Rome, such that the church could not have functioned without them. They were not relegated to the sidelines of ministry, nor were they told that their place is in the kitchen and in the birthing suite. Therefore, the caricatures of Christianity that feminists often apply to the church cannot hold. In fact, Christianity and the church elevated the role of women far above their historically low social position and indeed helped women escape the more destructive and demeaning forms of patriarchalism. We might say that the New Testament theology of women is more egalitarian than today's patriarchists might care to admit. Nevertheless, secondly, nothing Paul says in Romans 16 and nothing that it indicates was true of the church at Rome negates nor contradicts Paul's clear instructions regarding the distinct yet complementary roles of men and women, both in the home, Ephesians 5, and in the church, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
In other words, acknowledging Phoebe as a servant, maybe even a deacon of the church at Centria, or acknowledging Priscilla as a fellow worker with Paul, or acknowledging Junia, who along with her husband were outstanding among the apostles, understood in the general sense of missionaries, does not, cannot, and must not alter Paul's clear instructions. Number one, that the husband is the head of the wife and of the family. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Romans 16 doesn't change anything about that passage. Neither does it alter Paul's clear instructions that the leadership and instruction of the church is to be performed by the men of the church and that the office of elder is open only to qualified men and that if deacons perform the function of leadership and teaching, then that office is open only to qualified men as well. First Timothy chapter two, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first. Then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became became a transgressor. It's clear from that passage in first Timothy chapter two, that Paul's doctrine of male headship in the church, as well as in the home is founded upon the order and the design of creation, not the misogynistic whims of a patriarchal culture. In other words, we might say that the New Testament theology of women is more complementarian than today's feminists might care to admit. Finally, it must be noted that the true church at Rome was an outstanding church. It was a healthy church. It was a biblical church. It was an apostolic church. It was a church that Paul wanted to partner with in the ministry of the gospel. It's a church that he desperately wanted to visit and to be refreshed by at his coming. Therefore, it stands to reason that a true, healthy, biblical church is a church in which worthy women are intimately involved in the ministry of the gospel. We have some worthy women here at First Baptist Nixa. Let it be known that you have a long and biblical pedigree. So rise up, women of First Baptist Nixa. Be a Phoebe, serving the church and providing for her ministry and her members. Be a Priscilla, ministering the word, teaching the gospel, risking your neck for the sake of Christ. Be a Junia, outstanding among the church's missionaries, leaving kith and kin to make Christ known among the nations and willing to endure prison and even death for the sake of the gospel. Be a Mary, be a Trephana, a Trephosa, a Persis, working hard in the Lord. And let us be committed at First Baptist Nixa to being a simple church with a simple structure and simple worship in order that we might prepare men and women, boys and girls to live and to die for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've begun this morning to look at the Roman church in its apostolic purity and simplicity. I pray that 
again. You would stir our hearts to say, we want to be like that. We want to be a simple church with a simple structure and a simple worship that is powerful and effective in preparing our members to live and to die for the sake of Christ. Let's be done with all of the additions that want to creep in and distract. We want the spirit. We want the word. We want the supper. We want baptism. We want to... We want the church in all of its beautiful simplicity and power. Let's be that kind of church. And let's be a church that honors and promotes the biblical role of women within the church. A role that doesn't obliterate the distinction between husband and wife and male and female, a role that upholds the biblical teaching of the headship of men in the home and in the church. But a role that fosters and encourages and sends out equipping and setting loose women for the ministry to which you have called them. God, make us a biblical, healthy, apostolic church like the true church at Rome. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.